Welcome to Diagram Dialogues, a podcast that explores the forces transforming healthcare across Asia Pacific and the ways in which diagnostics is shaping this future. These episodes will feature leading voices, from innovators and changemakers to patient advocates who are dreaming of a better tomorrow and making it a reality. Hear how they are innovating diagnostics, shaping healthcare, and changing lives. Hi, and welcome to Diagram Dialogues. I'm your host, Jonathan Chan. The pandemic has helped mobilize incredible advances in innovation across the public and private sectors. Why is it then, after nearly a decade since the recommendation by WHO that HPV testing should be made the primary cervical screening method, that there is still such a lag to adopt it here in Asia? Well, today to help us answer this question is Professor Wu Yingling, a gynecological oncologist based in Malaysia. We're sharing a recent conversation between Professor Wu and Rohit Sagal from the Voices Project surrounding this topic. As parts of the world begin to turn the corner on the COVID-19 pandemic, pressing questions will, em- will emerge. What does a post-pandemic healthcare system look like? Join our Voices Project dialogue today as we take a weekly look at multilateral perspectives, examine the vulnerabilities and opportunities that COVID-19 has highlighted, And over the course of the year, policymakers, healthcare providers, academics, and those with stories to tell will come together with representatives from industry, patient associations, and multilateral bodies to examine critical issues facing our region today. And who knows, maybe we'll trigger a new idea, an opportunity that can change things for the better. Just remember, it all starts with that one single spark. Well, let's sort of talk about the topic for today. The pandemic has helped mobilize incredible advances in innovation across the public and private sectors. And why is it then that after nearly a decade since the recommendation by WHO that HPV testing should be made the primary cervical screening method, there's still such a lag to adopt it. If 70% of our women are to be screened using the HPV test in order to achieve the cervical cancer elimination targets, we need to understand the multidimensional socio-cultural norms that are going to be necessary to achieve these ambitious goals in Asia. Reviews on HPV testing in Asia lack somewhat of an in-depth discussion regarding these traditional and somewhat socio-cultural norms and dimensions that are part and parcel of this, of this overall discussion. So what's going on is something that I was asking. How can we bring some of these issues out into the open? to try and at least understand where some of these gaps and challenges are occurring. Welcome to today's discussion, the HPV conundrum. My name is Rohit Segal, and I'm the chief strategist at the Voices Project, a health and health policy focused entity based in Singapore. And today I'm joined by Professor Wu Yin Ling, consultant gynecological oncologist, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, University of Malaya, Malaysia, Prof Wu co-founded ROSE, Removing Obstacles to Cervical Screening, a foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to making cervical cancer prevention accessible and affordable for women in Malaysia. And she's also an advocate to increase access to screening for women everywhere. Prof Wu, thank you so much for joining this discussion today. Thank you for having me, Rohit. I think it's going to be quite an interesting one. There's so much to talk about. Uh, hearing and sharing your experiences and insights that will help us, in a way, frame this very uh, critical uh, conversation. 
So the pandemic has, as we said, mobilized a lot of innovation and, you know, from telemedicine to medical solutions and access with all these advances and leaps and in new ways of managing and preventing controlling diseases that are now endemic, what's been going on with HPV? Uh, well, first of all, what is HPV? Some listeners might ask. Prof, could you, could you maybe enlighten uh, us? Delighted to, delighted to. First of all, Rohit, I, I thank you for the opportunity to share a bit about the opportunities to eliminate cervical cancer. Now, this is the first cancer in the history of mankind that we are able to eliminate, we, we have the tools today to eliminate this cancer. So hopefully in your lifetime and my lifetime, if we get everyone together, all the players to understand their different roles in society and the community, we can do this together. So such conversations are extremely important. Why is it that we can eliminate this cancer? That's because we know the cause. What is beautiful about the, the science behind this is that in 1982, the Nobel winner Harold Zuhausen linked a high-risk HPV to the development of cervical cancer. And not only did he manage to find the cause, they've been able to map out the changes that occurs in the cervix, the genetic changes that occur locally at the cervix before it transforms into cervical cancer. Now, this gives us a window of opportunity to interrupt and to stop that process of infection, persistent infection, pre-malignant change, two cancerous changes of the cervix. So we have this time frame and we have the tools and the science to do this. It's a matter of how we're going to convince and approach this solution together in a socially sensitive and culturally acceptable manner. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. It's unbelievable. It's hard to believe that it's been so long since that correlation of the virus HPV uh, with uh, uh, oncogenic types that are 70% uh, accounting of the invasive disease. And I think worse still, the cervical cancer affects half a million women and a quarter of a million deaths worldwide. Uh, with unfortunately the overrepresentation of less developed countries being at 80%. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's something which is almost mind-boggling. I mean, you know, what, what, what would be these reasons? So, let's let's talk about that a bit. No doubt, these are frustrating statistics. Um, not only because, as you've pointed out, that this is a vaccine-preventable disease, but also it can have far less serious consequences. We've seen new technologies emerging and helping make early detection so much simpler. Is, is that something that you, you, you would agree is, is, is coming up to the, to, the, to, the, to the mark at this point? Completely agree with you. But as you mentioned in your introduction earlier on, COVID has exposed many weaknesses and also opportunities in terms of how we can apply vaccines, technology, to curbing or even controlling things like a pandemic. Now, for cervix cancer, as you rightly mentioned, we now have the vaccines. We have very effective and safe vaccines that have been given to large populations um, since 2006. Australia being the first country to adopt this vaccine in a systematic fashion for their girls initially and subsequently with their boys. And they're the first country to declare that they hope to eliminate cervical cancer by 2030. 
they've made that declaration and the prediction that it will happen. The, the second element really is uh, screening. For many of the developed countries or those from high development index, they've had effective screening um, programs by what we call the traditional pap smear or cytology way, way before many, many decades ago. And so with the combination of programs such as an organized pap smear program and recently vaccines, they can work towards elimination of cervical cancer quite quickly. The infrastructure is there. Now, what happens to the 80% of the women who don't have access to this? Countries from low and middle income setting. Now, this is an interesting question. So we now have the ability to bypass building an infrastructure for pap smears and moving to HPV testing. I've got a swap here. So it's easier. What COVID has enabled us to do is to talk about HPV testing in terms of in parallel with uh, COVID testing because it's a PCR test. You do it with a swap similar to a COVID swap. So for listeners, probably yeah. holding up something that just looks exactly like I think almost all of us have been through with our COVID tests. It's, just, it's literally That's just right. a, a simple... It is the same material. It's soft. And women can, can have their doctors or healthcare professionals perform this swap for them. Or just like COVID, where you can now do self-nasal swaps, women can do their own HPV testing. So we've now reached a stage where when we have conversations with women, ah, they know what a PCR is. They know about CT values, positive, negative results, how it's important to have the right laboratory test so that the sensitivity and specificity ensures that it's an accurate test. You and I wouldn't have been able to have these conversations five years ago. Yeah. But with COVID, I can now go to a woman and say that, ma'am, you no longer need a pap smear. The World Health Organization and many professional bodies are saying you only need as few as two HPV tests in your lifetime to eliminate the risk of cervical developing cervical cancer. L look at that remarkable advance in science. Uh, it sounds the simplicity of it all. And many times, and uh, you know, having sort of spent uh, the years as well uh, looking at cancer from a research and insights point of view, Technology was always a few steps behind, or the simplicity of application, as you've just described, the simple action of a swab. The, the, the challenge sometimes appears that cancer itself as a topic is almost the avoidance strategy comes into play. It's not an easy topic to even talk about. But what you've just brought up is that a simple, what, twice a year. Uh, twice so, a lifetime. Twice a lifetime. Twice a lifetime. So, you know. Twice a lifetime, Rohit. <laughs> So we're not even saying that this is going to be something you're going to look at literally between now and the next yes. years. And so it's almost, it's, it is helping to keep the cancer conversation not completely in your face, but it's allowing you to be in control. I, I think that's really remarkable for people to know, because if we can get past the issue that acknowledging cancers are a real part of our lives and the earlier that this is accepted, the better the chances are. Uh, if in lifetime it takes two swabs to at least know where one is on that spectrum, that it won't be serious. It won't have those factors. But is that, uh, Prof, a, a, a one of the deeper issues at play here? That is it the fear of cancer? Or is it the mixed issue of the financial policies that are, oh my gosh, if it's a positive result, 
how, then, what. So is it, is it, is it, does it sit in between that? I think this is critical. I think this is a question that each country needs to address. The health-seeking behaviour of an individual and as a community will very depend on the social support, the financial support and the healthcare infrastructure to support the individual. And when there are many aspects that are unknown for the individual or the community, then you will find different anxieties and fears coming about. For example, we already know that cervix cancer affects those who come from the lower middle income countries. And every single day they take time off from either their jobs or looking after their children, that's an opportunity cost for them. So when you talk about screening, you're actually persuading or trying to persuading women who feel healthy and well in themselves to come forward for a test, which may then lead to a whole cascade of investigations that will cost them money, take time away from their family. So why would I want to go and have something like that done? And these are the uh, health behaviours we need to really delve into and understand. And what I read from a paper from, say, UK that has a national health you know, system available there may not be the case or accepted in America or in Malaysia. Mm. And so when we adopt policies of screening, of support, we, we do need to look at the nitty-gritty of the social, cultural aspects of each country. Yeah. Now, even in Singapore and Malaysia, we have the rural area and urbanized population. So one size doesn't fit all. And healthcare, when it comes to screening and treatment, needs to take into account all those factors and, and someone needs to look at it holistically. And that's a very, very valuable word you said there, the holistic value of uh, uh, cervical cancer or any uh, cancers for that matter. And we're going we're gonna to come to that point because I think that's a critical one, as you said in your in your opening, that the socio-cultural uh, aspects of cervical cancer and screening is something that we need to look at. Now, let, let me let me in that case look at the perspectives that you said about the holistic care. Cancer is something which, uh, so when treated early, when screened earlier, detected earlier, can have a minimal uh, impact on one's life. Yet at the same time, as you said, the opportunities and the costs related to it. When you look at the patient continuum and you look at the, uh, uh, let's say, the cancer continuum on that perspective, what's, what's your view when you talk about, let's say, the insurance players, public and private, the uh, collaboration? Do, do, do you see that there is a matter of collaboration here between insurance providers, regulators, let's say, to that extent, and then perhaps even hospitals to look at reforming an approach that can incentivize earlier screening or looking down the road in how some of those gaps can be taken care of? Personally, I feel that healthcare professionals and doctors are the slowest to accept change or to adopt change. We're, we're not agile at all. And healthcare systems, if you compare healthcare systems to financial systems, we are way behind. You know, the technology is there. But why do you and I still have to go, walk into hospital, register here, walk to another place, book my test here, then go to another place to then get my prescription? We are not very patient-friendly as yet. And if you talk about walking into a hospital, there are eight different entrances. So from a perspective of a patient, just even at the stage where you need to approach health is already very daunting, very daunting. Now, then when you talk about insurance policies, 
let, let's talk about policies first of all. I think we need to have more conversations between science and the people who look at your claims, for example. I have recently had this um, conversation with my colleagues who look after patients with HIV, for example. You know, so few people realize that people living, individuals living with HIV under the correct treatment, they can live to a ripe old age with minimal morbidities. They can even have relationships where it won't put their partners at risk. So science have moved so far. And yet when we have financial policies, mortgages, we still discriminate against them. Coming to cancer again, when we talk about policies, so if, for example, a woman decides to take charge of her own life and she says, I'm going for a mammogram or I'm going for a screening test, but then an abnormality is discovered, she addresses it. And when she then applies for insurance policy, she will have a coverage that excludes that particular condition. So if you have had a mammogram, for example, that had some benign problems, then you buy an insurance policy. Oh, sorry, we don't cover your breast or your reproductive organs. Wow. That's punitive against a behavior that looks after prevention aspects. So while doctors say, oh, that's terrible, but maybe we need to have those conversations a bit better. What is your logic in your actuary that, that excludes that? Uh, why do we feel that you need to include that? So I, I think we have to stop working in silos from private, public and sectoral, financial sectoral sectors. We need to have opportunities to discuss. Maybe we need to have conferences where it's not medical conferences, financial conferences, but we need to bring everyone together. You know, Prof, that uh, you, you bring up something of such tremendous value, particularly in the, in the, in the region here that, that we all live in. So much has been said about the clinical value. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about the, it's so less intrusive and everything else that can get us there. But the social and belief-based based attitudes, um, the, the idea that we could have non-clinical conversations, you know, one that sort of tries to bring out or shine more light on where uh, HPV is today or some social misconceptions, as you said, a woman who's deciding to take stock of her situation and is taking that, it should actually be in that case encouraged and motivated. Surely community or faith-based leaders could galvanize public opinion, even dare I say influence policy, particularly at this scale, when we talk about inequity angles, you know, um, uh, that, that, that we're looking at. So that's a really important point. You mentioned events or perhaps, you know, conferences where it's less on the scientific elements, but more about a community-driven play. Is, is that something from a non-clinical angle that you would consider as being... We, a I, I can give you an example when it comes to HPV vaccination. Malaysia has a very successful um, school-based, government-funded, HPV program that has been there since 2010. So it's been a decade. And one of the things that when you go to, when you share about this in the, among our international colleagues, they say that, oh, but you're a Muslim predominant country. And HPV vaccine is a misconstrued as a sexually transmitted infection. And therefore, wouldn't there be lots of resistance to this? Well, what our Ministry of Health did very well was they had these discussions with the school teams so that the, the teachers can encourage vaccination. 
and the, the, the nurses can educate the, the teachers. And at the same time, they spoke to the religious leaders and to understand the fatwa and to get halal status, to help people be confident, you know, about the halal status and then to, to get the messaging across that this is a cancer vaccine. This is not a virus vaccine. So similarly now, we need to move towards that. A swab for HPV is a cancer screen. It's not a screen of a sexually transmitted infection. And that needs to really, really be hammered in either by from the media or from doctors. And we have to have a real different conversation. Last time with the pap smear, it's easy to say that, oh, I've got abnormal cells. Now you're saying if you have a positive screen, there's the presence of a high-risk HPV. But we need to educate people that HPV is not a sexually transmitted disease per se. There's no antibiotics, there are no symptoms. We are purely using this as a cancer screen. It's crazy. I mean, you know, by referring to HPV so firmly as an STI, it, it positions it, as you said, as a, as a prior disease, the one that has to stay under the shadows. And perhaps no surprise that, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a complicated issue when you're talking of payers, regulators, really grabbing the issue by the horns. But I mean, even the positioning of a cancer as an STI, it's a fantastical outlook. The idea that we're still looking at the STI component and that having an impact on the support and help that will ultimately be given, it's staggering. Isn't there a way that we could reframe the policy? I know that sounds very simplistic, but you know, the listeners, I'm sure, are asking the same question to themselves, that isn't there a way that you know, the policies can be reframed, that can establish a clearer set of tools? And you touched upon it, didn't you? You said there's a scientific side, and then there's the area of what we do to bring this disease to be more inclusive. Is there a way that that can actually bring those uh, things together? You just be made well, more aware. Practically speaking, this is extremely important. So let's bring back the, the, um, our conversation earlier on about insurance. Now, from my understanding, very often when someone screens for HPV as part of a cancer screening um, test, if it's positive, their insurers will not reimburse any subsequent treatment because it's viewed as a sexually transmitted disease and hence attributed to certain behavioral um, factors that, you know, we, 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 will, we, will, we won't pay for this. Now, that needs to change because we now understand that 80 to 90% of men and women at some point in their lives are HPV positive. We don't have that information in the past, but now we do. And when you screen ad hoc, Malaysian men, and the study has been done, if you screen ad hoc, no symptoms, you get 100 men to screen. 30% of them, you'll detect HPV in them. That's right. And that's a common infection. It's mm. not a disease because you have no symptoms. There's no, no untoward outcome. And for females, it's the same. And therefore, it is not a disease per se, but it is the inability to clear a common infection that will then lead to potentially a disease. Exactly. I, I remember in the old days, once my mother had come and said, I said, what's that on your face? And she said, the doctor told me I have herpes 
And I said, herpes. And then suddenly you realize all these other things. What? And then it only takes you time and I guess a little bit of education to realize that, hang on, it's not that kind of, you know, so the similar way that, you know, you start looking at common infections and in a way normalize uh, what HPV is. Rohit, you have really, you have chosen the example I use for my patients, you know. Um, they understand what a cold sore and they understand what chicken pox is. So 95% of us have had chicken pox. But the chickenpox virus still lives in us. And when we are stressed, when we're immune compromised, we might get shingles. 90 over percent of us have herpes virus. And when we are stressed after a cold, we get a cold sore. <laughs> Similarly, HPV is the same. And therefore, we need to destigmatize. We, we need to change the conversations. That's a fantastic example you've given. We coexist with viruses and bacteria. Very well said. I think this coexistence, I mean, viruses basically have existed as long as this earth has existed and yes. realize that if, if not the last couple of years has taught us particularly that you can try and erase the virus but at some point you have to say it's going to be there we just have to live with it we have to figure out a way to protect ourselves and just 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 move in with it now in a way that sort of takes us to a to a topic that i i, I think a lot of times is it's sort of either over or underrepresented. I mean, it's also used very loosely and broadly, and that's universal healthcare. Uh, universal healthcare, particularly uh, around some countries here in uh, ASEAN, particularly, is really being put under the microscope because of the fact that the pandemic has obviously taken a tremendous amount of toll on services and prioritization and so on. But at the same time, you know, if you go back a couple of years, uh, UHCs were doing some tremendous work in being able to bring back the equitable reach to things like screening, to things like detection, and not just uh, for cancer. I mean, uh, let's let's remind our listeners, there was a thing called diabetes that we're supposed to be aware of, metabolic and so on. So disease awareness and screening was actually something that UHC programs were trying to create equitable dialogue, ultimately trying to get folks to get there earlier and detect it earlier. Where does that sit now in this post-pandemic time? I mean, compliance and training, how, how, how hard or how simple has that now become? I personally think there's a silver lining in all this. And for many countries, we still can't use the word post-pandemic because they are unfortunately in lower middle income countries. We are still seeing it. And now we've superimposed wars and, and climate change. So that's why even doctors you know, need to understand the impact of climate change, architectures, building cities. We, we cannot look at things in isolation anymore. But coming back to universal healthcare, I think it, it starts, we need to inculcate and incorporate and sort of make it part and parcel of our lives. Let's talk about screening. When we talk about screening in cervical cancer in, say, Malaysia, a woman has to actually make that active decision to go somewhere to have it done voluntarily. Someone who grows up in England or Australia they accept it as part and parcel of their lives. You know, you're born, you go to school, 13, you get a vaccine, and by 25, you get a letter to say. So it's, it's sort of weaved in as part of your citizenship. Now, universal healthcare can achieve that if we start and we think about each individual, each citizen's, you know, life cycle in that country. Where do you weave it in in your education system? I think it can be done. 
the, the skepticism to, to vaccines perhaps is not seen, for example, if let's say we have school vaccination program. So I, I think it's time to relook at how we can build more acceptability towards healthcare uh, provisions that's not ad hoc, that's part and parcel of our daily lives. Rob, I think this is a really good segue and something I was really keen to know more about um, and something I really want our listeners to also know that, you know, Prof Wu's uh, own experience, as I said at the opening, is, is also being part of a foundation that does some significant work in exactly as, as we've been talking about right now. And in fact, the ROS, the ROSE program is removing obstacles to cervical screening. Well, I mean, let me ask in the context of what you just said here, that it can be, or it doesn't have to be, ultra complicated. The uh, normalization of this dialogue, the reality that we have testing and access that's been made so much simpler. How and where, and we've heard this from you know, folks within the WHO corridors as well, that how do we enable these kind of integrated care when we're looking at post-pandemic times? And how is Rose in that way trying to sort of find a pathway? And you may have mentioned some of this already, in fact, in terms of how you're simplifying the screening itself. But is there a way that integrated care across the cycle can actually be achieved? And talk to us a bit about ROSE and, and how that's doing some great work. Yeah, I think ROSE came about in from my observations in Malaysia. I was looking after many patients who, who had advanced cervical cancer, something that I never saw in the UK. So the first question I asked is, why aren't women getting screened? Why are they not getting screened? Pap smears are free in Malaysia since 1969. You walk into any of the government clinics, you can get it done for free. So when you dissect each of these, you dissect the question out, it is for, very, for the reasons we spoke earlier on, inconvenience, the perceived embarrassment of having a test done uh, with a archaic instrument, um, I'll have it here, with a speculum, yeah, the listeners are yeah. was holding up something which, yep, that looks a little in, more than intrusive. <laughs> uh, yes, there we go. So women need to have a, a pelvic examination for someone to visualize a cervix and to get a specimen of cells from the cervix. So there are reasons why women don't come forward for screening. So I did a simple thing, just put myself in the position of a woman and asked, why wouldn't they go for screening? And at the same time, I had conversations with people outside medicine, and I had conversations with colleagues from overseas, uh, my, my friends in Australia. And that's where the, the power of collaboration, friendships and relationship comes in. So my colleague in Australia, friend Marin says, do you know that you can now do swaps? I said, no, I didn't know that. And, um, and then you bring in the element of um, mobile technology, cloud technology, and you speak to bankers. I spoke to Sally, who was involved with um, instituting the ATM cards in Malaysia machines. So you, you sort of get a big, broader picture of what the tools are available to make life easy for women. Then I went to the clinics. And the nurse tells me, do you know that I need to write down an individual's name and their special IC number seven times on the swap, on the book, on the form, on the courier form, on the lab form, seven times before I can get a pap smear sent. Where, so I said, okay, we can do scanning. 
we can enter things once. So Rose came about and eventually Rose is a community screening program that involves three elements, which is self-swap, mobile technology and HPV testing. And it's backed up with significant amount of uh, educational material and personalized navigation um, for those who are screen positive. So for the 90% who are screen, no, 95% who are screen negative, we don't need to focus our energy except to reassure them. But for the 5% who are positive, we invest a significant amount of time through a call center, through phone calls, to guide them through the treatment or linkage to care. So one very important thing for all the pride of Rose is linkage of care. A screening test, no matter how accurately how accurate it is, intrinsically it has no value unless a positive screened patient is linked to care. And that's what program Rose is. And that's what each of us should be doing, ensuring that those who screen positive for any disease can be brought to treatment in a fashion that they are comfortable with. And and, and I think that that, that, that's that's a great description. And and that's why these sort of conversations are so vital because the work and the, in a way, ideology that Rose is now building, which is do away with fragmentation, do away with lack of efficiency, do away with everything that's a obstacle right from the nurse who has to physically go through the motion seven times on a piece of paper and a book, et cetera, to the actual you know, patient or the other person herself who feels that this was the most simplest thing that she just went in, walked out. And as you said, 95% are going to carry on with lives. And it's the 5% right. who aren't then left uh, with, let's say, the complications of uh, what to do next, but you're building in its own way the structures and the framework ultimately for an integrated policy framework. And I think this is what we're trying to figure out here, that can we take frameworks that are being built by uh, organizations like Rose, for instance, and use them or at least be able to amplify them as work and pieces that can work in other parts of the region or in other disease factors as well that are facing the same sort of situation. Ultimately, I think what we're all driving towards is how do we leverage and utilize this specific period to make these changes permanent. And I know, and maybe you'll agree, is that this last couple of years, while all the staggering uh, insanity around us, it's also provided an acceleration for many of the technologies that you've mentioned. And somehow technology has caught up with healthcare and we're finally able to see how data and other delivery mechanisms can work together. And that's why you and I are able to have this conversation and discussion without being there, you know, uh, face to face. Really, exactly. the power of technology over the last two years have really enabled us to do way much more. Exactly right. Well, I mean, I, I think this topic and, and the time that we've talked today has brought at least a, a necessary level of, I guess, energy and enthusiasm back to something which is so essential right now. It's, it's not a topic that most people tend to want to look at directly. And once you do, you realize, hang on, that wasn't actually so complicated. Oh, hang on, that wasn't actually something that I had to be scared of. It's actually something I could have participated in. And the idea that we can start to normalize and hopefully as we continue this dialogue um, and probably wonderful to have you back to sort of talk alongside uh, technology uh, experts, alongside with them, folks from the payer side 
and not to sort of put a finger on anyone, but to sort of see that collectively, can we sort of build uh, new conversations and possibly new solutions as well. Thank you so much for your time. I know your schedule is jam-packed and this is something which, you know, I think we're, we're able to do, as you said, because of the technology uh, that exists and we're able to uh, spend this time together. Uh, we'll be sure to uh, find ways that we continue this. This is the first of many that we're going to focus on, particularly around areas that uh, matter, such as HPV and cervical cancer. Thank you so much, uh, Prabhu, for your time. Thank you so much to the Voices Project Asia for enabling this initiative and bringing these stories to life. You're going to stay tuned for our next episodes, hopefully, and you'll find on your favorite podcast provider channel, or you can find it on our website at www.thevoicesprojectasia.org. Thank you so much for watching, listening, and remember, we can make a change happen. It just takes one step at a time. And that is the end of this episode. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more about Roche Diagnostics and Diagram Dialogues, please visit rochediagram.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.